Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to our special insurrection edition of Everything Compliance. In this podcast, we have a true roundtable discussion of the events around the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, taking a look at it from a variety of angles, including the business response, the compliance response, the congressional investigation into the police response, the removal of Trump by impeachment, the broad view from across the pond by Jonathan Armstrong, the Twitter and Facebook and social media fallout. We have shout outs and rants at the end of this podcast. I know you will enjoy this podcast. It was live streamed, so you can check that out on Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube. Uh, welcome, everyone. I hope you're going to enjoy this. We have uh, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jay Rosen on this recording, and we're going to take up the events from Wednesday uh, going forward. I think everyone knows that uh, Trump incited uh, a riot and insurrection at the Capitol. He directed his supporters to go to the Capitol and engaged in mayhem at the Capitol, leading to five deaths. Um, so a very somber time for any American as well. So, Matt, uh, why don't you start off for us? Yeah, sure, Tom. So uh, this is, by the way, exciting that we are actually broadcasting live here. Hence, I'm wearing a shirt for only the second time in the last six months. Um, but I think that uh, this is really going to lead to some difficult come-to-Jesus moments about corporate culture, ethic, and how uh, large organizations are going to deal with this infection that Trump has unleashed into the body politic. Um, I know a lot of corporations like to pretend that a lot of policy is separate from corporate life. That's like that's not the case. Uh, your employees have political views. They express political views. Political activists work at companies. They bring them in. Um, so I think that you know, we really have to start to consider what do you do with a certain strain of the population, around 35% of them, who are aligned with Trump and really are pushing these values that are antithetical to America and democracy. Um, and it sounds corny, except really it's not that the ethical values of the country are that foundation upon which corporations then build their own ethical values and everything else that comes from that, all of the corporate culture talk and the compliance programs and the policies we have to nurture large groups of people, to certain standards of conduct and blah, blah, blah. All of it actually really does matter. And anybody who has hoped for the last four years that maybe we won't have to confront the really difficult questions that Trumpism raises, you're out of luck we are going to have to confront them. Uh, we have to confront them in very big, lofty ways about what Donald Trump does, what Trumpists espouse, is either not grounded in reality 
or to the extent that it is grounded in reality, it's not acceptable. It is not acceptable to think that white Christians are better than other types of Americans, which is a tenet of Trumpism, as far as I can see. And it is just not acceptable to create your own facts and your own theoretical beliefs about what the world is when they're not true. There was no effort to rig the election. Um, There is no grand conspiracy with China and Hunter Biden and Venezuela and whatever other crackpot nonsense Trumpists keep believing. And we're going to have to stop tolerating and stop putting up with Trumpism and how it infects everything we do. That's the lofty part. And I have some very difficult practical parts that compliance officers might need to think of, because, as I said, we have a lot of these people running around now in corporations because they're employees. A lot of them, they seem to work somewhere or they seem to interact with corporations, their customers. How do you deal with those people who are beyond the pale of acceptable American conduct or really any sort of normal Western civilization conduct? Um, Great example of it came on, I think it was Wednesday night, uh, on a flight from Texas to the Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., where there were a whole bunch of Trump supporters who were very rowdy and very disruptive on the flight. And a bunch of other passengers were saying, you have to sit down. You have to wear the masks. You can't shoot your Trump 2020 logo up on the ceiling and distract everybody. The flight attendants were saying that. And the Trumpers continued to say the rules don't apply to us. We can do what we want. What is an airline supposed to do about that? This was Delta Airlines what happened. And we could say, let's not allow Trumpers onto flights because they are going to be disruptive. How would you actually identify them in advance? That's the question where we start to get to how corporate matters. Um, if we were talking about Muslim parents, you would know. If you show up with an Al-Qaeda headdress, if you are wearing paraphernalia, we would say you can't get on the flight. TSA, go grab that guy, interview him, put him on a no-fly list. We would do that. That is a preventive control for international terrorism on flights. Well, what is the preventive control we're going to uh, have to deal with for Trumpists and their proclivity for committing domestic terrorism. Are we going to say anybody who wears a MAGA hat or a QAnon t-shirt is probably a Trumper who is probably going to cause trouble, might do something violent, all of which has happened, by the way. That's not a theoretical thing. We have had MAGA Trumper supporters commit violent acts in this United States. The preventive control would be to find them because you know when you see them and tell them you can't come on the flight, you can't come to work. You can't have that bumper sticker on your car in the office parking lot. You can't wear the QAnon T-shirt to your department team meeting. It makes other people uncomfortable. Are we going to do that? I would say yes, we should. But this is not an insignificant number of people in the population. And it's going to be very difficult to tell them. They're going to raise hell about how it's political suppression and censorship, none of which is true. This is the crazies can't hang out with us on the sane end of the spectrum. Get out of here. That's all it is. How would you codify that into a policy? How would you put disciplinary procedures into it? That's the sort of thing that we're going to need to think of. And then one last point. Uh, And then I promise I'll let somebody else talk. (laughs) And Jonathan, actually, this is going to tee into what I think you'd like to talk about. 
the social media platforms that have banned Donald Trump, and especially Facebook, who said they have banned him until further notice. What's the notice? What is the event upon which they will reevaluate Donald Trump and say, we're going to let him back on? What is the event? Uh, so actually, as we are recording this, Donald Trump is back on Twitter after being banned for 12 hours. Twitter said if he violates the terms of service again, we're going to ban him permanently. What are the objective criteria you would have to do that, to reach that decision? How are you going to build a process that is defensible in case this becomes a mess? Spoiler, this is going to become a mess because that is everything that Donald Trump touches becomes a mess. How are you going to structure evidence-based objective criteria for something that is so widespread and so also steeped in subjective opinion? That's something else that corporations are going to have to think about. Facebook and Twitter are going first. Anybody else who thinks that they're not going to be able to, to have to go through this, that you can avoid it, you're deluding yourself. This is going to catch up with all corporations sooner or later. Start thinking about it now. That's my soapbox. I'm going to get off for a while, but thank you for your time. I was going to make a point on the uh, on the sort of almost what you might call the restriction of movement bit, and then yeah, I am keen to talk about social media as well. And 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 on the first point, I guess the the closest analogy I can give you is in the UK we had a problem with football hooliganism, maybe in the seventies going into the eighties, uh, and and I guess the early nineties. And, and, and one time, I imagine it was in the 80s, my brother was, uh, was beaten up in, an, in, a, in a, uh, an, an, uh, some football hooliganism. And the, um, and the senior police officer in charge of that particular operation uh, invited him in for a coffee. And, and my brother said, and he wasn't badly hurt, my brother said... Um, Oh, my brother's a law student. Can he come as well? And to his credit, this senior policeman said, sure. And it ended up a bit of a lecture in how to police gang violence. And, and that's what we're talking about he, here, isn't it? And it is incredibly complicated. You know, if you look at some of these football firms, they were called in the 70s and 80s, the police would restrict their availability to hire coaches, for example. They'd restrict their availability to book train tickets in blocks, et cetera, et cetera. But we mustn't underestimate how resourceful people like this are. You know, they'll get to Washington in the trunks of cars. They will hire minibuses. They will go to the... Uh, they'll go to the, uh, I don't know, Tyson's Corner and walk. They'll do all of these things, I think. And so whilst ever you can say we need to restrict people, they will go underground. You know, in, in, in the UK, for example, uh, we've long had pubs banning people in football shirts ahead of a match. The UK police actually have quite a clever ratio to try and uh, algorithm to try and predict where violence might happen. This is back in the day, of course, in history times when we had large crowds, crowds at soccer games. But even so, you will get people who will try and game, game that system. And I think it's much the same on social media as well. And my 
my worry is that, yes, Trump was banned from some platforms indefinitely, and as you say, from some uh, temporarily suspended. But the difficulty you always get whenever there are bans like that are that once you stop being what's technically called a mere conduit, a platform that just allows people to interface with each other, then you get people with equally crazy views demanding that anyone else with different views should be banned. You know, we've had, without entering into the debate, there have been calls uh, in the UK, for example, about J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter uh, author, saying that she should be denied any social media platform at all as she entered the uh, debate over whether transgender uh, women are women, and if so, under what circumstances. And the difficulty you get when you say, I don't like this guy's views, is nearly always there's somebody else who doesn't like your views either. And whilst ever we have the privilege of living in a democracy, and both of us do, and uh, um, both of us are, uh, uh, all of us are representing democracies on, on, on camera today, and, and it might not feel like a democracy at times. The difficulty you get is you might get, uh, I don't know, a Turkish politician who says that any of you criticizing him should uh, not be allowed on social media. We've already had fake tweets from Kim Jong-un that turned out not to be Real, of course, it was a, a it's a, a, a well-established comedic spoof saying that Kim Jong-un has never done anything to be removed from social media. And that shows the uh, superiority of the uh, of a non-democratic system over a democratic. So your difficulty with censorship is who is the censor and where do they draw the line? And in some respects... The Facebook thing, we're then going to play into, in part, this whole concern about people have about some social media operations behaving like and effectively being monopolies. So back in the days of the railroads or whatever, if I was Andrew Carnegie and I wanted to go from a startup to monopolist in railroading, then it took me an awful lot of metal, an awful lot of time, an awful lot of money. And that was maybe, even in my wildest dreams, if I was an Andrew Carnegie, that might be take me 10 years to monopolize steel production or to monopolize the railroads. But now we get operations like Uber, like social media, Facebook to an extent, TikTok, that go from startup to monopolist in three, four, five months. And they don't have that investment in compliance. And they oftentimes don't have anybody who you might trust to take that decision that this guy's a bad guy and shouldn't have a platform. And this person's saying controversial things that, that ought to be said. So, I mean, I, I, I agree that there's a lot of unsavory elements of, of this whole thing. And I'm not defending them. I'm specifically not defending the uh, abhorrent uh, waving of Nazi flags, the, you know, Holocaust um, uh, uh, 
celebrants, you might call them, and this whole trail of weird and wonderful people that tagged on uh, behind or were at, uh, at the heart of it. Who knows? But I, I, I just suspect that for the world at large, it's a challenging point. And for compliance officers particularly, particularly it is. You know, most compliance officers are not equipped to referee views on, let's say, transgender issues, whether one employee's views are unacceptable versus another. And, and, and it's a challenging, challenging role for compliance professionals to become the, the referee on, on some of those decisions as well, I guess. I just wanted to call a point that I think is important to emphasize um, is that we're going to hear a lot of this, I think, is talk about censoring certain people with political yeah. companies do not censor. Corporations cannot censor. Only a government censors. And specifically, a government censors you when it prevents you from saying something, not even when the government then punishes you later on for saying something. That's not censorship. But so when we talk about are we going to censor people's views, corporations are not censored. Corporations are taking their ethical principles and applying them to the business partners they have. And you can say our principle is that we are all things to all customers who might come our way, and that's fine. But a lot of people will not accept that. A good example of what I mean is just this morning we saw news that the publisher Simon & Schuster has canceled a contract to write a book by Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, who is one of the, frankly, I would say, collaborators with Donald Trump in uh, this nonsense that the election was stolen. And he had a book deal coming out. Then comes his stunts on Capitol Hill and the attempted whatever it was. You want to call it a coup? I do call it an attempted coup. So Simon Schuster said, no, we're not going to publish your crap. You're nuts. Um and that is perfectly fine. It's perfectly legal. It's not censorship. It is Simon & Schuster putting its ethical ideals into very practical terms in a business relationship. And that's when I say, everybody who thinks, oh, this isn't going to catch up to my company. Yeah, it is. And you have to be yeah. able to think about that. Um, Uber, let's say they are transporting uh, MAGA people from destination A to uh, incipient riot B, uh, would Uber then say, we're not going to take anybody wearing a MAGA hat and a QAnon shirt? I personally, I think that would be great. Um, but then does that run afoul of other, I don't know, fair transportation laws? I don't know if there is such a thing. Uh, you can quickly see how this gets messy, but you can also see people are going to start calling for some firm like Uber to don't participate, don't enable these people who are trying to overthrow America and its fundamental ethical values. And we could go on all day long. I'm just saying it's not just a question of what are your compliance obligations. So what is the company's ethical priorities? How are they going to codify that and put it in force in their business relationships in real time? That's what's coming. But I, I agree with you that corporations are getting drawn into making these decisions at haste. And as an aside, I think given the ethical status Uber had uh, displayed, they're more likely to surge price than deny transportation. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, but that's another story for another day. But um, but one of the things I thought was interesting, and and, and it was hard to get UK coverage live of the incident, obviously. 
spoiler alert, the UK's got political issues of its own. So I had to go on to CNN and, and you know, watch it on my, on my tablet. And that, 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 that was really interesting, I think. And obviously, the UK news ca caught up some time uh, uh, behind that. But one of the things that I thought was very interesting from a corporate point of view, I don't know whether you saw it, is there was a guy who not only was dumb enough to attend, not only was dumb enough to dress very inappropriately uh, and uh, invade the capital, but also to have his employee ID badge round his neck. And within minutes, the, uh, the people of Twitter had frozen the uh, the CNN footage or whatever it was, zoomed up his badge, tagged the CEO, I think, of his employer in uh, into the tweet and said, um, tell us whether you believe your employee should be here doing this. And I'm paraphrasing the uh, CEO who, or whoever it was. There's a chain of two or three different tweets. The last one I think I saw was, uh, you are referring to our ex-employee. He has just been terminated. Uh, and um, uh, but, but corporations are having to react in nanoseconds to things like that because people will pile onto tweets like that on social media. So the events from outside of the workplace come into the workplace in a heartbeat. And most compliance officers have to be ready for that call, don't they? Now, yeah. um, the, those twitters, uh, uh, those tweets appear. Do you back the guy? You know, back or sack? That's your decision, and you have to make it in in thirty seconds, or, or, or Twitter runs away with itself. Now, so so I, I, I think that whole piece has been interesting from a from a UK perspective. I think that the the abiding thought, like with you, has been one of regret. Really, we the UK likes to think it's a democracy. We have had issues with uh, with our current government not respecting the rule of law, and it's somewhat ironic that one UK politician who has been accused herself of inciting violence. Um, and uh, at least one lawyer, it seems, has been attacked because of remarks she made, uh, effectively said, um, well, I may have given off-the-cuff views, but I'd never be uh, incite people like President Trump has. And when you get somebody you know, who's in that bad a place in public opinion, say, you know, almost shining the light on, on, on Trump, then you, then you know he's in a, in a bad place. I think that Opinion over here has turned definitely. I think I think Trump was in some respects seen as something of a comedic character, and and people are realizing that it's much more serious than that. I thought it was instructive the 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 way that the rumours of him coming to Scotland to play golf during the inauguration became a political issue very very quickly indeed with the. Scottish yeah. government indicating that they may prohibit the, the the plane to land if he's on it and if he's coming to play golf. So I think that um, I think I think the public mood over here has certainly uh, changed as well. And and is that for the better? I mean, Europe has its own problems with with right wing politicians. You know, from 
the Le Pen movement in in France to the re-emergence of some neo-Nazi groups even in in Germany. And it'll be and 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 I don't think anybody is taking a holier than thou attitude over in Europe. I think it's a global concern that how do we how do we deal with these things other than encouraging our politicians to be nicer and behave better and to yearn back to the olden days when you had a respectful disagreement rather than the type of vitriolic language that that we've had from Trump. I mean, I guess just one other point I'd raise with you. Um, we haven't seen much over here of the coverage of Giuliani, but I know people were wondering previously whether he was maintaining the ethical standards that would be required of him as a lawyer. I don't know, Tom, whether anybody has given any thought to that in the US and whether the the more recent statements have accelerated any issues that he might have with his professional standing. But that seems to be another issue that we're anxious for news on over here as well. So, Jay Rosen, uh, what has been on your mind about this imbroglio? So as uh, many of you know, I'm a recovering screenwriter. Tom and I often talk about movies. And uh, I was just really touched by some of these stories about what happened to people. And uh, specifically, I'd like to address the um, basically abject failure of security forces of the Capitol Police. And um, part of this really, I think, becomes... Um, an issue that comes to white privilege, that these folks, uh, specifically Stephen Sund, who was the head of the Capitol Police, who's offered his resignation, as well as the sergeant of arms at both the House and the Senate, um, they supposedly had a very robust plan, but they weren't able to put it into effect. And part of this stems from this disturbing footage that you see protesters who were there taking uh, selfies with the police who were supposedly defending the Capitol that day. And to get furthermore, uh, when the movie comes out, uh, I'm wondering who's going to play the following, but we have two parallel situations that you have the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, whose uh, father uh, was intimately involved in the Watergate hearings over 40 years ago. And um, then you've got Governor Ralph Northam in Virginia, and they both wanted to try to send troops to help the folks who are caught in the Capitol. And they were barred by the Pentagon from doing so because the Pentagon uh, purposefully on their part wanted to limit the number of people who were going out there. So you've got the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and you've got um, Steny Hoyer from Maryland who are picking up the cell phones and calling the governors of their own states to try to get the guard to come help them. So, you know, if we thought Benghazi was bad, what is it going to look like when we start to have the hearings here about why this, uh, why the, why this fell apart? And part of the rumblings that we're hearing, I'm not sure if where I can officially cite to, but decisions were made that, well, this is going to be a more safe crowd. This is going to be a crowd that is not going to attack us because it's mostly white people and it's not people of color. 
And uh, talking about slippery slopes, Jonathan, about decisions that are going to be made, and you too, Matt, when you talked about corporately, how are we going to make these decisions uh, politically now about what type of expectations are, since I live out in uh, you know, a, a more suburban area of Los Angeles, I would seem that the policing is probably much different here than those folks who live somewhere more urban and more dense. So other decisions that we have to think about is how are we going to help people make these decisions moving forward? And uh, it's just um, scary when you read that uh, you know, you're stuck in there. Your government is not helping you. You're trying to call your state and you are not getting any love and uh, you are stuck there and, and nobody's coming to help you out. Tom, can I offer a thought or two here? Please do. So uh, I think in a, Jay is trying to dance around a, a topic that I'm just going to punch right in the face because we, it's, you know, we, somebody has to say it. Uh, there is a problem with white supremacy in too many law enforcement organizations, and that has to be fixed. Uh, I agree that what happened with the Capitol Police is astonishing and alarming. Um, it could very easily have gone another way where people in the line of secession to the presidency could have been killed. And I think that is what at least some of the uh, protesters or rioters there wanted to try to accomplish. But think about how would you actually rectify the culture of that police force? And then expand the question, how are we going to rectify the white supremacy culture that infects a lot of police forces? And I know that I just grabbed the third rail. You are not supposed to say that law enforcement is bad and racist. However, except for the evidence that a lot of them are, I don't know how many, I don't think it's a majority, but it is enough that there are serious corporate culture changes that have to happen in law enforcement generally. Um, and you have to think about how would you actually do that? And I believe a lot of it would depend on diversifying the ranks of law enforcement, especially the leadership ranks. And then we'll open the lens even further is how do we diversify the uh, levers of political and corporate and legal power in this country? And it gets to now suddenly, well, now I see why NASDAQ has a new listing standard requiring more diverse boards for publicly traded companies. And California has done the same, requiring more diverse boards. And now that we have Democrats running the show in Congress, we are going to have hearings about racial equity and how you achieve that in your corporate organizations. Um, it is all tied together. And while the Capitol Police and their abysmal failure there raises some painful questions specifically, when you step back and think about what is this all really about and how are we going to respond to it, this is how we're going to respond to it with much more of a push for more diversity so we can actually avoid some of this white supremacy nonsense that has totally infected too many parts of this country. The Republican Party foremost, too many law departments or law enforcement agencies second, and lots of others, and we're going to have to fix it. And this is why we wind up grappling with these diversity issues that we have. So, uh, Matt, since you're not afraid to address these things directly, uh, I'd be curious to hear what your uh, thoughts are on the 25th Amendment. Who was Jay talking to? Because my audio conked out. He was talking to Matt Kelly. Oh, to me? So I, I do actually have other thoughts about the 25th Amendment. Thank you for raising it. 
I have thoughts about everything, but I'll try and confine them. Um, we now we're seeing all of these senior Trump officials, uh, Trump administration officials resigning now, including cabinet secretaries. Um, I disagree with that. I don't think they should resign. I think they should do their jobs of saying the CEO of the administration is ineffective, is unethical, and we have to make sure that he is the one who leaves office. Um, it does this country no favors to have everybody around Donald Trump resigning while Trump himself is still nominally with his hand on the levers of power. Um, I think it's disgraceful that people are resigning. They should be sticking to their jobs and invoking the 25th Amendment and getting rid of him. And for everybody who says, do we really need to do that? He's going to be gone in 13 more days anyways. Let us remember, not four weeks ago, we discovered this country had been victim of an enormous cybersecurity attack. And we still do not know exactly what happened with that attack. We don't know if some of whatever was left behind is still there, is still active. But if we have all of Donald Trump's national security people resigning, if we have all of his other operational lieutenants resigning, if you are a world leader who has a vested interest in disabling the United States, trying to activate some part of that cybersecurity attack, this would be an excellent time to do it. This would be an excellent time for the Russians to turn off all of the lights across the United States because they probably could. And one of the things that they stole was our plans for turning all the lights back on if that ever would. So I do not believe national security people should be resigning. I think they should be raising the alarms and saying, we got to get this president out because he's an income poop and a moron and put Vice President Pence in because the lights do not need 13 days to be turned off. They can go off immediately. So I want to talk about the business enablers. And I was struck by an Andrew Ross Sorkin column yesterday in the New York Times deal book where he asked about the businessmen who have enabled uh, Trump, educated, smart, articulate, usually wealthy people who are willing to ignore his threats to democracy in the name of economic growth, racism, lighter taxes, access to power, you name your poison. Uh, these leaders are touting their values and their social responsibilities, but they're enablers and they've enabled Trump. So what should the institutions do around them? He, he called out Steve Schwartzman, the Blackstone Group co-founder, who is one of Trump's ardent backers and confidence, confidants on Wall Street. The, um, uh, his, what should the pension funds and other investors who are doing business with Blackstone uh, think about? Do you want to do business with people who support those who uh, counsel insurrection against the U.S.? Now, Schwartzman did break with Trump after the election and publicly accepted Joe Biden's um, election as president, but many others didn't. And what about uh, people who work at Blackstone? Do you want to work at a place where the CEO uh, supports someone like Donald Trump? What about Oracle with uh, Larry Ellison? He's, he has been one of the most vocal proponents of Trump. Uh, what should their uh, employees think? What about their clients? The list of Trump's backers in corporate America uh, goes on and, and Sorkin talks about those. Uh, I think Matt talked about Josh Hawley having his contract, uh, book contract with Simon & Schuster canceled by the company. 
Uh, what should be the repercussions of doing business with people who continents uh, insurrection against the United States? Uh, I don't want to be associated with them, but uh, business may have other other stakeholders. Uh, they may have other concerns. And I think businessmen are going to have to take a very hard look at the decisions they've made. Jonathan asked about Rudy Giuliani. Well, let me point to another lawyer from Texas whose name escapes me, but um, he posted to Twitter uh, his tour of the Capitol, short tour, because Twitter has a a 60-second limit for videos. Well, he was terminated the next day uh, by his company. And the question I have that feeds into what Jonathan asked is, will he now be subject to state bar uh, disbarment proceedings for obviously um, advocating insurrection. Uh, I took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and the state of Texas when I became a lawyer below those many years ago, and that still applies. Um, and Rudy Giuliani has clearly violated the law uh, multiple times, and the most recent was, uh, I still can't believe he cannot call the correct senator Uh, But he left a lengthy voicemail with the wrong senator because he was trying to reach Tommy Tuberville to get him to delay the uh, Senate proceedings around uh, its uh, acceptance of the votes of the electors. Um, So uh, Giuliani certainly should be disbarred. I'm not sure where he's licensed to practice law anymore. If it's simply New York, uh, he's not licensed, uh, admitted to any federal practice. He had to be specially admitted by a process that's available to lawyers. Uh, But uh, he certainly should be up uh, for disbarment, as should all the lawyers who uh, made the allegations they did in the the baseless allegations and lawsuits. But I think now we've gone to a completely different level, which is the um, fomenting of of insurrection and, and Giuliani was also one of the speakers who egged on the um, the rioters and uh, sent them over to the Capitol. So in in our world, uh, at least in Jonathan and Tom's world of lawyers, I know there are lots of conversations about that, and we should be having those conversations. In the greater business world, uh, there are a lot of questions, and a lot of questions that we're going to have to have dialogue with in the big picture. Uh, whether we want, are we going to br- now break down into two commercial units in the United States, uh, pro-democracy and those who want to foment revolution or something else? Um, are you going to still shop at Chick-fil-A um, or not? Um, or what about Hobby Lobby or any of those other places that are uh, right-wing run? So uh, lots of different questions. Um, the fallout is going to be uh, continue uh, for quite some time. Uh, so, Jonathan, does that answer your question about uh, Mr. Giuliani? Yeah, it does. I, I think they're fascinating thoughts, Tom. And I did an interview uh, um, uh, last year with uh, Richard Levick, who's a you know reputation guru in in Washington, and he was saying, I'm paraphrasing Richard. That that the last the Trump administration's almost been the most challenging for any corporation from a from a compliance from an ethics perspective, in that again this point about vacuums really when you've got a uh, a government that 
is slow to respond to events like Black Lives Matter or responds in a way that the corporation with its hand on its heart can't support, then corporations have to be more vociferous and enter the political realm more than they would ordinarily. And, and, and obviously, a lot of ethics professionals are being asked to get involved in those discussions as well, almost as the, as the moral compass of the, of the corporation. So it's definitely been a challenging year for compliance professionals, not only because of the pandemic, but also because of this extra weight of responsibility that's been put upon them throughout the last administration but in the last week or so uh, in particular as well. So Matt, did you have something else? I, I did. I had one more thing I wanted to put out there that is peripherally related to what we're talking about, but I still think it is uh, interesting, is that we should remember, um, meanwhile, uh, in the actual part of American democracy that works, uh, the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, has now announced who will be running the Justice Department. And I think we should do well to note uh, the appointment, the nomination of Merrick Garland to be attorney general. Um, one thing that strikes me, okay, so Justice Garland is, I believe, head of the appellate division in Washington. I know he is on the appellate circuit in D.C. Uh, he is a was a prosecutor who prosecuted both the Unabomber and, and Timothy McVeigh in the 1990s. Looking at all of that, especially his experience handling complex judicial cases at the appellate level, this is a man who is uniquely well-suited to handling something as complicated as bringing charges against a former president, which up until Wednesday, I wasn't really sure that was going to happen. Now it is going to happen. Now I, uh, Garland is probably the best sort of attorney general you could have for something as delicate and difficult as that, which we have never seen in the United States before. But all the corporations who are thinking, when is this going to end? Not anytime soon, because I would bet my house that Donald Trump is now going to win face investigations and criminal charges after he leaves office. All of his people are going to get riled up all over again. Um, we have not yet seen who might run the criminal division. We have not yet seen a nominee for the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, so I don't know what some of the other uh, the Justice Department nominees will mean for corporate compliance. I'm sure we can talk about that next month. But uh, we should just remember that you know there is an actual administration that knows what it's doing. They're coming soon. And now we have some sense of what they'll be and what they'll actually be spending their time on. Jonathan Marks, uh, what were your thoughts around Wednesday from the business perspective? Well, Tom, it's a great question. Um, I've been reading a lot about it. I did not see it happening real time. Uh, some may have, uh, may have. I did not. I joined that late and obviously watched the news like everybody else. But the first thing that came to my mind was crisis management and crisis preparedness. So, you know, I read the comments that I believe Mayor Muriel, Muriel Brower um, made, and I believe called for a creation of a panel to investigate the security breakdown. You know, so in other words, perform some type, hopefully some type of root cause analysis. Um, you know, I looked at some of the comments that were made about the chief of the Capitol Police. And um, I guess the, the thing that I think is, is kind of interesting is, and I don't know whether everybody knows this, is that I think um, 
one of the one of the representatives six days prior to um, you know the events of confirming um, uh, uh, President-elect Biden and President-elect Harris, uh, they, they grilled the the chief about preparedness for various scenarios. And one of the comments, I believe it was in the New York Times that I read was, you know, th this individual said, uh, you know, he assured me that they have everything under control, that they were on top of everything. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody tells me they're on top of everything, I, I immediately get nervous. You know, so then I started thinking about how can we use this as a learning moment for crisis management and crisis preparedness? Um, and, and I started, I'll start from the very beginning. And one of the things I think is, you know, some of the biggest mistakes made when handling a crisis are not dealing with the problem head on. Um, I, I believe that that actually was done in this particular scenario. Um, maybe not to everybody's satisfaction, but I think that that was done. You know, thought, thoughtless and insincere comments, lack of communication, you know, with the people, you know, unprepared people that were unprepared. Um, you know, I don't know that that really happened. We do know in the business world that, you know, sitting back and letting problems grow um, is really not the answer. Um, we had companies, and I'm not going to mention them by name, but were, that were all good examples who stumbled or have stumbled with crisis management. And that list is long and distinguished, you know, but organizations should really study uh, the crisis and learn from from their mistakes. And so, you know, I started to I started to really think about, you know, I, again, how this really transcends into the business environment. And, you know, in today's environment, you know, organizations of all types face a variety of threats to their operations and some risks can be planned for, you know, monitored and mitigated. But, you know, other high impact, hard to predict events occur more often. I don't know if this was something that, you know, I, I believe, I, I'm hoping that there was proper risk management here. I, I'm hoping that, you know, when they uncover, uh, when they do their investigation, hopefully they do a root cause, they get down to some of the nitty gritty as to why this happened. I know that originally there were crowds that were planned for in the neighborhood of 20,000. Some estimates put the crowds at 40,000 or more. Um, you know, some, again, sometimes hard to predict, but, um, I also know that the insurgents upon Washington, D.C. and the surrounding areas and hotels and the like should have been sort of a tip off for folks as to really what the gravity of this situation and from a mass perspective, what it might have looked like. So, you know, and you and I both have been around some horrific corporate and organizational events, including the one we witnessed, you know, this this week. And, and I and I have to say, you know, when the heat gets turned up. You know, the leadership team, you know, in my estimation, at least the police forces, this was a catastrophic security failure. They melted, like I say all the time, like and my mom used to say to me, butter in a hot pan. So, you know, crisis readiness has really taken on an increased importance and urgency for boards and management teams. And, and we, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum. And the list of potential crises that organizations can find themselves facing today really does loom large. And, you know, Social media played a role here. Um, whether the information was accurate or inaccurate, it didn't matter. Um, but again, going back to root cause analysis and 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 what these crises have revealed is that the board's involvement and oversight uh, is often questioned with uh, when an organization's response to have deemed to have fallen uh, short. And so, 
you know, I've written about this, I've spoken about this, but it's particularly true in cases where early warning signs were ignored. And I think that's a classic case here. And or the crisis was attributed to the organization's culture or tone from the top. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to profess to be an expert in incident response or crisis management like the police chief came, you know, uh, had set out and is actually listed in his bio. But what I will tell you is that if I'm a board member today and I'm a senior leader today, I am going through my risk assessment and I'm looking at those risks, the ones that we know and the ones that we may not know. I'm looking at, you know, emerging risks. I'm looking at the speed of onset. I'm looking at, you know, how prepared are we are, how prepared are we for a crisis if and when it should occur? And the pandemic, you know, might have been sort of a good litmus test for some, but a crisis like we experienced on on Wednesday, which I um, and, and many others have equated to sort of the gravity of, of 9-11, um, you know, it is really it is it really should be a wake up call. You know, crisis prevention goes hand in hand with risk management. Risk management involves identifying and anticipating the likelihood impact and speed of onset as events, like I mentioned. And or that could become a crisis. So implementing programs and systems of controls is really, really necessary in order to mitigate events like this. Um, um, you and I have talked about this before, Tom. You know, risk assessment should be done at the speed of introduction of risks and at the cadence of the organization, not during a prescribed period. So all of you out there in audit and compliance, senior leaderships, even at the board level, you know, even though it's a, you know, some say it's a best practice or a better practice to do a risk assessment once a year. I think that that's ridiculous. Risk assessment should be looked at continuously. If you're part of a board, you know, and you have your enterprise risk management program and you're looking at those risks, those risks should be harmonized across the entire organization. You should be looking and discussing those risks on a regular basis. You should not wait for a year to go by, two years to go by, or some formal event to happen to reassess your risks. It's just not acceptable in today's environment. You know, and so, you know, readiness and response is really critical. Um, you know, who gets involved, what channels should be used to communicate internally and externally. I think there was a breakdown there as well. If you look at Wednesday's events, again, I haven't studied them ad nauseum, but I think there was a breakdown in communication. You know, um, how will the organization monitor and manage, you know, all, all of these particular issues? Again, you know, was there proper coordination amongst all the police departments, the Capitol Police, the D.C. Police, you know, the surrounding precincts, you know, the National Guard? It doesn't seem to me that that really was the case. Just planning is simply not enough. And so, you know, key elements of a crisis plan. And again, I've talked about this before. You know, what are your key principles of policies for crisis management? You know, have you identified a command post and a backup if, and make sure and that's fully functional? So if your command post was the capital and that's, you know, being there's an insurgence there, you know, what's being done to make sure that there's some other um, way of, of, of marshalling out the resources that you need? Designated chain of command. Again, I don't I don't know whether that existed or it didn't exist. Planning scenarios. I already said before that somebody had questioned the police chief six days before. I think it was a representative um, six days before about scenarios. Did they properly plan for these things? Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was just all on paper. And we all know what paper exer- where paper exercises really, you know, lead us to, um, you know, and, and, you know, backup resources. Again, you know, if your resources are tied up or you don't have the proper resources, make sure that you have backup resources. These are some of the key fundamental elements of a crisis plan, things that I just did not see 
based on my, again, limited review of the events that happened on Wednesday. So, you know, un- understanding human behavior is also something that was pretty critical here, knowing how those people should have reacted or were reacted. You know, were they monitoring social media? Were they not monitoring social media? Again, you know, were there key inflection points? We criticize organizations now, or I shouldn't say criticize, we scrutinize organizations now. You know, we have, you know, the um, evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And one of the things, one of the great things that came out of that was, is that organizations need to be more business intelligent. So what data was the Capitol Police using to be business intelligent? You know, um, to me, again, if you looked at the hotels and all the people that were coming in, you looked at airline traffic, there are a lot of data points there that could have given you a better indication of who and what was coming in. Whether that was done or not, again, I still don't know. And I hope that instead of an investigation into all of this, we already know what happened and hindsight's 2020, but somebody do a real critical root cause analysis and get down to the nitty gritty. And if you're a CEO, CFO, chairman of a board or a senior leader, and you saw what happened this week, I hope you take umbrage in the fact that, you know, crisis management and crisis preparedness is not a joke. And, you know, COVID-19 certainly, like I said before, probably could have been a good litmus test. What happened uh, Wednesday certainly was another one. And I don't think we're done yet. We're moving so quickly right now with everything that if you don't have a crisis prepared, you know, if you're not crisis ready and you don't have a plan that's going to be fully functional, I think it could pose some significant risk to the organization and some of the people that you deal with. So that's, that's really what I have to say about the events that happened on Wednesday, Tom. Jonathan, I heard maybe a couple of different things. One was you started off by talking about a risk assessment, but then you moved to a, a, a true crisis management plan. And that, uh, so I wanted to ask, should you have a crisis management plan even when you don't know what the risks are? If it's an unknown unknown, can you have a plan or something like that? If it, if it actually pops up on you unexpectedly. Absolutely. I think you should always have a, a, a plan for the unknown unknown. Um, you know, it, you know, I, I, again, sometimes predicting these events is very, very difficult or predicting a risk event is very difficult. But if something does happen, you know, sometimes the leaders that you have in an organization are not the right leaders to be involved in a crisis scenario. They're just not. Um, so that's why I think doing simulations, even though you have the unknown, but doing simulations and see how people act or react, even if something you perceive to be not a risk and you make it into a risk from a scenario perspective is critically important. And so while I agree with you that, um, you know, uh, you know, planning is important and sometimes predicting for the unknown is somewhat, uh, somewhat I don't know, sketchy sort of, so to speak. Um, I do believe you should still have a plan. I do believe that you can find maybe one or two or three risks um, that, you know, that possibly could happen. Look, you know, cyber risk, you know, people say, well, we have the best laid plans and we have all these things, you know, ready, you know, and we can never have a breach or somebody can't hack us or, you know, implement malware into our system. You know, that, that may be true, but you know, it's not a hundred percent. There's nothing hundred percent today. So, you know, game planning, scenario planning, and all those types of things, even though you you, you don't have – there is the unknown, and seeing how people react in those particular environments and those situations I think is going to be critical if and when the unknown becomes the known. 
So now we're going to move to our fan favorite time of the uh, <laughs> podcast uh, or live streaming event of rants. I don't know if we'll have some shout outs, but I might surprise with one. Uh, Matt, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? Well, I feel like I've been ranting for the last 45 minutes here, so I'll try and keep it brief. Um, but I think I will do a dual rant shout out. Uh, I do have a shout out to Simon and Schuster for canceling that book deal with Josh Hawley. Um, that is the right thing to do. And then I have a rant to Josh Hawley, who once the contract was uh, canceled, sent out a tweet that this was a violation of his First Amendment rights and he will see them in court. Dude, you were a state attorney general. You clerked at the Supreme Court. You graduated from Harvard Law. You know this is not a First Amendment thing. You know you don't have a leg to stand on with whatever complaint you're going to whine about now, Simon and Schuster. So my rant is to him for being yet more of a jackass related to his conduct this week. And I really didn't think that was possible. But man, he did it. Jonathan Armstrong. Yeah, I've got a shout out and it's a, a bit of a sad one, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that in this whole charade, uh, people lost their lives. So my shout out is to uh, Brian Sicknick, the, uh, or, or the family of Brian Sicknick, the uh, police, U.S. Capitol Police officer that died in these uh, shameful events. And my shout out is also to the family and loved ones of PC Nick Dumfries, PC Matthew Lanny, Special Constable Resham Singh Natal, uh, the family and friends of P PC Christopher Miller, and Sergeant Matthew Ratana. Uh, I'm fortunate to live in a country where only five police officers were killed in the line of duty last year, but uh, that's five too many. You're here. Jay Rosen. So I have three things that I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the fact that even though we had this national tragedy, that thankfully we did not have as many people lose their lives as they could have. So that's number one. Number two, to the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate for getting back on it, for going into the uh, Capitol and for affirming the correct new president of the United States, President-elect Joseph Biden. And these are the people who are the unsung heroes, those aides in the Congress who had the foresight to rescue the ballots and take them out as they were being evacuated. Because if they didn't, those people who were there uh, stamping on desks and smoking pot in the Capitol surely would have burned those ballots. So three things that I'm thankful for. And uh, I'm going to have a shout out and I'm going to have a shout out to Ted Cruz. Uh, in addition to being the number one a-hole in the Senate, a well-earned title, uh, during the uh, riots and attempted insurrection, physical attack on the Capitol, Ted Cruz sent out a fundraiser email and uh, asked for money. So uh, your um, surge pricing from Uber, Jonathan, well, uh, Ted Cruz took that to heart and uh, sent out a uh, fundraising email literally while the Senate was cowering in the Senate chamber and then evacuated, uh, asking for money to help overturn the uh, people's decision to vote Donald Trump out of office. So, Ted, I don't know how you can do it, but you continue to plumb the depths 
of uh, any humanity. Did you have to Venmo money to him in his undisclosed location? I think so. Jonathan Marks, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Well, I'm going to be consistent in the fact that I'm going to go with uh, um, Doug Peterson for the Philadelphia Eagles and the fact that he tossed the game um, last week. I, I don't know about anybody who's listening to the podcast today or tomorrow or in the future, but to me, you know, you're a professional athlete. I played sports most of my life. You play to win. Uh, you don't play to throw a game or do something like that. I think what was done there is an absolute disgrace. And if I were the owner of that organization and that was something that, you know, I hope that Jeffrey Lurie did not condone that. But if that's something that I saw, Doug Peterson would have been out as soon as the game was over. That They wouldn't even have a press conference. The press conference would be on me and I'd be telling the press that he's fired. Well, gentlemen, this has been a great uh, Everything Compliance, our first live stream. I look forward uh, to doing this again. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thank Take you, care, Tom. everyone. Thanks for watching. This is Tom Fox. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We're going to try and do these live every two weeks on Friday at 11 a.m. Central Time. So I hope you can check out our live feeds, which will be on both LinkedIn and Facebook. Everything Compliance is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join us again for our next Everything Compliance podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.